Father in heaven, it is good to be in your house. It really is. It's good to gather here solely for the purpose of worship. It's good to be surrounded by our brothers and sisters. We come here today because of you, every one of us. Lord, I pray that we will leave knowing that we have been with you. I pray that everything that happens in this place is worthy of you. And Father, I pray that we will worship well. Now, as we open our Bibles, we're asking that you teach us. We're going to look at a really simple command. But Father, it has many implications. Help us grab them all. In Jesus' name, amen. A few weeks ago, I was on Facebook and saw a video that many of you saw. I know you saw it because a lot of you sent it to me. It is really good. It inspired me when I saw it the first time, and I have watched it a number of times since, and I have been inspired each time. It actually was the 2014 commencement address at the University of Texas, Austin. That address was delivered by Admiral William McRavens. He does it very well. This is just an excerpt from it. I want you to pay attention to it, and then we're going to make biblical application. I'll show you where it comes from in Scripture, but first, watch this video. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task, and another, and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. That you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if the shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout, and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you want to change the world, don't back down from the sharks. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had was made up of the little guys, the Munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The Munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good-natured fun 
of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys from every corner of the nation and the world always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart, not by the size of their flippers. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the Mud Flats. The Mud Flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana Sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down in the Mud Flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive this freezing cold the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope, the power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. I hope you followed all of the wisdom that the Admiral shared with us. There was some great medicine in there. Things like this, don't back down from the sharks. Judge a man by the size of his heart, not his flippers. But the part that really grabbed me was that very first part. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. Doesn't that seem really simple? It does. Sounds like something you would learn from a Dr. Seuss book, or maybe it's wisdom that your mother would have shared with you, and moms share some of the best wisdom ever. Make your bed every day. 
Now that's a, a sermon my mother preached every day. We couldn't leave the house without making our bed. We couldn't start the day without making our bed. Growing up, I knew that that was the first task that had to be completed. In the email letter that I send out to the congregation on Fridays, I ask people to share with me some of the other wisdom that your mom might have shared with you. Which, by the way, if you're not on that list and you would like to be at the end of the service when we pass out the notebooks, put your email address in there and just write, please add me to the list. You'll receive our weekly emails. You'll also get on our prayer list. If you would like to be, write prayer list on there. So we make sure you're on that and we will get things to you. But I ask people to share some pieces of wisdom, good medicine, if you will, from their moms. And a number of folks responded. Here are some pretty good ones. One person said, his mother always told him, remember that alcohol is a thief. Lady said that her mother drove home this idea. It's not ladylike to curse. I like this one. Love your parents even when you are upset and hate them. Fellow that wrote that to me said, my mom told us this every day after her mother passed away. Another man wrote, his mother wanted them to know that there is no shame in being poor, but there is shame in being dirty. That's good stuff. You can only have ice cream for breakfast if you have it on your waffles. (laughs) My mom always told me that you're never too sick to hunt. The lady that wrote that said she drug me out of bed one day to shoot a buck. Another lady writes, take care of the pennies and the dollars take care of themselves. Well begun is only half done. You're a short time young and a long time married. Take your time. Nothing good happens after midnight. Two wrongs don't make a right. If you can't say something nice about someone, say nothing at all. You can't carry the world on your shoulders. The last thing that you do before you go to bed or leave the house is go to the bathroom. The first thing you do in the morning when you get up is go to the bathroom. If you can't keep a secret, how do you expect someone else to? Even a fish would stay out of trouble if it would keep its mouth shut. You can get happy in the same shoes you get mad in. Inasmuch as you have done to the least of these, you have done unto me. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. And look for the good in everyone. There are others that would add to that list. The Bible would add, make your bed every morning. That's where Admiral McRavens actually got that wisdom. Now, I don't know if he found it in Scripture, but I know that it's there. Make your bed. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. Now, you might be thinking, if you have studied your way through Scripture, where exactly is that found? Is that in the book of Proverbs? Is that tucked away in the Psalms? Is it buried deep in the book of Hezekiah? Where is that? By the way, there is no book of Hezekiah, for those of you that are keeping track. Some of you are thinking, I've never seen that before. It's actually found in the book of Acts, to be precise. It comes from the mouth of Peter, to be more precise. And it is surrounded by good teaching. Go with me to the book of Acts, will you? This is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. Tina and I have been deeply entrenched in this book for the past several months as we have been studying it together. For the past couple of years, our SALT group has been deeply entrenched in this book of the Bible. It's going to take us all of two years to study the whole thing. It is a book of inspiration that will make you want to do something when you read it. Now, just to be transparent with you, I'll let you know that as a pastor, I have found myself a number of times not knowing what to share with people in the middle of some deep, 
dark situations in their life. And I have needed inspiration. So I've opened to the book of Acts. I've just looked for something to come out of there. If it was nothing more than something that stirred my soul, that got my mind thinking. The book of Acts does that. As a pastor, I also have found myself saying that I don't know what the church is supposed to do next. Now, if you've been with us very long at all, you know that I don't like points of stagnation in the church. I believe that a church is either moving forward or backwards. There is no middle ground. And that means at times I have found myself saying, I don't know what we're supposed to do next. And I have opened up to the book of Acts and I have never failed to be inspired. It's that type of a book. If you have never studied the Bible, maybe you want to start in the book of Acts. You'll learn a lot about how the church got started, but you will also have your spirit stirred. It's a great book. You'll find some deep teaching, some of it very short in nature, and you'll need to hang out there in order to mine all of the nuggets out of it. This passage is one of those. Acts chapter 9, verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Annas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Annas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. There's Admiral McRaven's wisdom right there. Annas, your faith has saved you. Jesus Christ has saved you. Now rise and make your bed. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. That's where it comes from. Isn't that cool? Tucked away right in the middle of the New Testament. This idea of making your bed. Start with something small and get moving. I don't know why it is that in all of the time that I have spent in the book of Acts through the years, I have never hung out with this fellow named Anus or Annas very much at all. I haven't for whatever reason, and I should have, because there is so much to learn from him. In fact, if we just start digging into his story, which by the way, this is the only place that he shows up in scripture, but if we start digging into this story, we will find wisdom that can change our world and the world that we live in just by figuring out who this guy is. So for the past few weeks, I've set up housekeeping with him. I have been exploring his story. I've been exploring how he lived. I've been exploring everything I could discover, which let me say again is not much. And I've been figuring out how to apply those lessons in my own life. And it starts by making your bed. This is a unique guy. For eight years, the Bible says, he suffered with paralysis, which means he couldn't get out of bed on his own. His legs didn't work. As much as he wanted them to, he couldn't get them underneath him so that they would carry him into life. He was defined for eight years by this bed. I promise you, without ever finding this detail in the Bible, that he had gone to doctor's appointment after doctor's appointment, looking for a new answer, looking for somebody that might be able to help him, and the Bible would help us see that he never found that individual. He had to have been discouraged. I promise you that he was. He had to have found himself dependent on other people for the most basic of needs in his life, unable to do them on his own. That's what his life looked like for eight years. 
he could have easily come right to the edge of fatalism. Fatalism is an interesting emotional process. When a person gets fatalistic, they have arrived at a place where they would say, things will never get better, they cannot get better, this is it, that's it. There is no hope. Fatalism is just one step beyond pessimism. Now, you may have spent time around a pessimist. You may have spent time around an eternal optimist. Both can be annoying in their own rights. There's kind of a, a middle ground where life really happens. The pessimist is the person who sees the worst in everything. The optimist is the person who sees the best in everything. Every once in a while, they can complement each other, maybe even balance one another out. This is a, a good story for that. Pessimist was looking at a situation he was facing, and he said to the optimist, there is, there's just no way that things could ever get worse. This is terrible. The optimist with a big smile on his face looked back at the pessimist and said, sure they can. <laughs> See how every once in a while they can balance one another out? That's the way that works. Lannis was more than likely a pessimist by this point in his life and possibly headed towards being fatalistic. However, there was something in his life that balanced that out. Did you catch what it was? It's faith. He was a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, let me show you how we know that. Jump back into verse 32 with me. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Annas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. Now, let me take you through biblical logic so that you can see this for yourself. When Peter came down into this region, he was looking for a specific group of people. They were the saints. And he found Annas. By implication, Annas was a saint. Therefore, he was a believer in Jesus Christ. The term saint in the New Testament, when it is applied to an individual, means that they were a believer in Jesus Christ. That's all the word saint means. Sometimes we try to make it way too lofty. A saint is a person who's been saved and sanctified. That's who a saint is. So there are a number of saints sitting in this room. You might think if we begin to name them all out one by one, well, I think maybe you've misplaced that term. No, I haven't. They're saved, they're sanctified, believers in Jesus Christ. And Annas fit the bill for that. He was a man of faith. The Bible does not tell us how he became a believer. He'd been paralyzed for eight years. So we know that he had never been to Jerusalem. How did he hear the gospel message? Well, there's a group of scholars who would teach that a Gentile believer that had been at Pentecost had come back to Lydda and shared the gospel and Annas had believed, placed his trust in Jesus. There's another group of people, and I think they might be right, who would say that Philip the evangelist had been in that area, and he had come to his house and shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him, and he had responded. The reason that I lean that direction is the fact that he was paralyzed. He couldn't leave. There was no way he could have gone to a meeting anywhere. That was impossible. So Philip the evangelist, as he traveled around and found individuals, may well have knocked on Annas' door, come in, sat with him, and given him the gift of salvation. However it happened, and we don't know the details, we know that he was a saint. And Peter came to check on him. And I love, I love what Peter did when he walked in. Peter said, here's what I want you to do. Verse 34, look at this again. 
Peter said to him, Annas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. You see, when Peter came in, he brought with him his faith, but he didn't rely only on it. He coupled it with Annas' faith, and Jesus Christ healed him. Now rise and make your bed. What a great statement. What a simple statement. Get up and make your bed. What an incredibly curious statement. Rise and make your bed. This is not the only place in Scripture where we will find a command for healing followed by simple acts. In fact, those commands are peppered all the way through Scripture. Let's go to the Old Testament. We'll look at the book of 2 Kings. 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. Now it's the faith of a slave girl that is about to change his life. Don't lose that detail. It's a great one. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I a God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. The king was wise enough to know that he didn't have this power. He didn't have this ability. If Naaman was looking for healing, it wasn't going to come from the king. And the king knew it. So listen to verse 8. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. Now listen to verse 11. You may find yourself in this part of the story. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not the Arabana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So many similarities to the way that we approach the commands of God found in this story. There are so many. Naaman wrestling with this leprosy all these years, wanting nothing more than to be free of it, finally has the answer when he came into Israel and the man of God tells him what it is. But Naaman bowed up his neck and said, are you joking me? 
I traveled all this way, and all I have to do is go dip myself in the nasty water of the Jordan and I'll be healed? Why in the world couldn't he just come out and wave his hand and make everything okay? Have you ever questioned what God wanted you to do? Have you ever questioned those commands? A lot of people have. Here's a simple one. Somebody's reading the New Testament and they want to know what they need to do to be saved. In Acts chapter 2, people ask that question. Peter said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. There are people that will say, why do I have to repent of my sin? I want to stay right in it, doing what I'm doing. And if God's grace is really as big as everybody says it is, then he'll forgive me of my sin. I shouldn't have to leave it. I shouldn't have to stop. There ought to be a way that God would let me do what I want to do without making me stop. Well, it <laughs> doesn't work that way. Or people will come right to the edge of baptism and they'll say, okay, I understand repenting of my sin. I understand accepting Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. But baptism, that's just goofy. Why should I have to do that? I'm not going to be baptized. Good night if I go into that water and they dip me back into it and I'll come out of it, my hair will be messed up. I'm not going to do it. That is sometimes the simple argument that people put out there. or They'll say, it's embarrassing to be baptized. I shouldn't have to do that. Jesus could just wave his hand over me and forgive me of my sins. And it should be that simple, so I'm not going to do it. That's the argument of Naaman. But I love the fact that his servants would say to him, you know, you could easily do this and be cleansed. And the leprosy would be gone. Stop arguing about it. Do it. And that's my point to people that are arguing about repentance or baptism. Yeah, you might find a way around it, but you might not. And is it worth the risk? Just do it. And to those that would say, baptism is embarrassing and I shouldn't have to. God can do it a different way. I would say the cross was embarrassing, but Jesus chose to do it that way. So don't let it stop you just thinking that this doesn't make logical sense. Do what the Bible says and don't argue against it. If you want to be healed, make your bed. Just take the first simple step. And in Acts chapter 9, that's exactly what Annas was doing. He was taking the first step. And Peter said, you got to do that. You need a completed task and then you can move into your life. So rise and make your bed. When we get to the New Testament, we find that teaching in other places as well. Go with me to the Gospel of John, would you? There are 31 recorded, unique experiences of healing in the Gospels. 31 that came from Jesus. Not all of them required simple steps, the making of a bed, if you will, but many did. Let me show you one of them. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now the urban legend during this time was that an angel came every morning and stuck their finger in the water and stirred the water, and the first person to get into that water would be healed. It was a myth. 
an urban legend. But all of these lame, blind people in need of help would go there with the anticipation of being the first one into the water. And that's what this man was saying. There's nobody here to help me. So Jesus helped him. He said, get up, take up your mat and walk. Simple steps. This man could have argued and said, I'm going to stay right here and I'm going to wait to get into that water. Or maybe I'm going to be healed, but I am comfortable on this mat. I'm not going to move. I'm going to stay right here. Or he could make the choice to get up, take up his mat and walk to have his life changed. We often fall prey to believing that this man was only 38 years old, that he had been an invalid all his life. The implication in Scripture, and that's all it is, is an implication, requires a lot of of our imagination to see it. He said he was quite a bit older than that. He knew how to walk. He knew what life prior to this would have been like. Now Jesus gave him that life back. Get up. Take up your mat. Make your bed and walk. And I want you to see what happens. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See your well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Beautiful picture all the way through. Jesus disappears after the healing. He's gone. Man gets up, rolls up his mat. Jesus has disappeared because it was the Sabbath and they were attacking him. But he didn't leave this man alone. Instead, he comes back to him in the temple. Follow what happens. Man leaves the colonnades and he goes to the temple to worship because of what had just happened in his life. He had been healed. He went to say thank you. And Jesus found him. What an interesting thing for Jesus to say to him. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now that's part of the way that we know that this man might have been a little bit older. He said, sin no more. His paralysis, his issues may have been a direct result of sin that he had allowed into his life. And I don't mean a spiritual existential judgment that came against him. It's entirely possible that they came as a direct result of his actions and choices. So when he was healed, Jesus said, don't do it again. Sin no more because something worse may happen to you the next time. Don't do this. 38 years you paid the price for your choices. Don't do it again. Sin no more. And what he discovered was this great picture of redemption. Take up your mat. Take up your mat and sin no more. Put an end to your past and sin no more. Let's go back to Acts chapter 9 and take a look again at Annas' life. Look at what happens here. Peter said to him, verse 34, Annas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Now, verse 35, pay close attention. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. He changed, Peter did, Annas' world. And Annas, in turn, changed the world of everyone that he lived around. Every one of them saw him, and they turned to the Lord, the Bible says. I was curious when I 
first stumbled across that passage to see what commentators had to say about the evangelism that happened as a result of Annas' life. And so I pulled out a number of different commentaries and I started reading. And, and they want to try to explain this away. And so they said only the people in Lydda and the surrounding areas that saw him believed and turned to the Lord. But that's not what the Bible says. Look at what the Bible says. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him and they turned to the Lord. Other commentaries would say that only the people who had been chosen or called turned to the Lord, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that all of the residents saw him and turned to the Lord. Anybody want to argue with what the Bible says? So here's what happened. Peter changed Annas' world, and Annas in turn changed the world of everybody around him. And it all started when he made his bed. When he put an end to his past and made his bed that he might move into the future. Can you imagine how happy he was to get out of that bed? I've been in it for eight years. Now I get to get up every morning and make that bed and remember exactly what it was like to be in that bed. And now I'm going to go do life. And when I come back to that bed tonight, when I climb into it, I will ask myself this question. What did I do with the gift of today? And tomorrow morning when I get out of that bed, I will make that bed and I will remember my past and I will go and do life today. And when I come back to it tomorrow night, I will ask myself, what did I do with the gift of today? If you want to change your world, Admiral McRaven says, start by making your bed. If you want to change your world, the Bible says, start by making your bed. Take a simple step. And then let everything else fall into place. I love that. Ministries of this church teach that very thing. Several of our ministries do. But one that is the most pointed in it is our Celebrate Recovery ministry. They have a a facet of what they do called the 12 steps. In the 12-step study, they go through step-by-step ways to allow Jesus to change your world that you might change the world around you. Let me walk you through these 12 real fast. Just stay with me. Here we go. Number one, we admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. Step number two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Number three, we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. Number four, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Number five, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Number six, we were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, we humbly asked Him to remove all our shortcomings. Eight, we made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, we made direct amends to such people whenever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. 10. We continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. We sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and power to carry that out. And 12. Having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, you want to see something curious? Look at step one and step 12. 
We admitted we were powerless over our addictions and compulsive behaviors, that our lives had become unmanageable. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. When a person gets to the point of admitting those things, they have chosen to rise and make their bed. I am leaving my past behind. I will make my bed and move forward. And then pay close attention to number 12. Having had a spiritual experience as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to others and practice these principles in our affairs. And now I'm going to do my best to help people have their world changed as well. My world has been changed by Jesus. I will do everything I can to change the world around me in his name. That's the whole point of Acts chapter 9, 32 through 35. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. Jesus has healed you. Rise and make your bed. If you're not a person that makes your bed, which by the way, I'm just going to tell you I'm not. My mother preached it every day for 18 years. Every day for 18 years, I made my bed saying, why do we do this? Because we're just going to come back tonight and get back in it. So it seems silly to make it. But I married a woman who makes our bed every morning. So every night I climb into a bed that was made, and every day when I'm walking past our bedroom, I see a bed that was made. I want to encourage you to make your bed. And maybe, honey, I'll start helping. (laughs) See what happens. I want to encourage you to make your bed in the morning and leave your past behind and let that become a part of a spiritual discipline where you remember what God has brought you out of. Every day while you make the bed, remember what Jesus has healed you from. And every night, when you climb into that made bed, ask yourself what you did with the gift of that day to change the world around you. It is a spiritual discipline that can be tied very simply to an easy daily practice. Make your bed. I can imagine that Annas never missed a day of making his bed. Can't you just picture that? Every day when he got up, that was a new idea for him. To make his bed, to pull the blankets up over the pillows and tuck in the sides. He remembered what it was like to lay in that bed. And every night when he pulled those covers back, he could reflect on what it was like to be out of that bed. Try the same thing. It can be a beautiful spiritual discipline. If you want to change your world, start by making your bed. Stand and pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, great teaching, simple teaching. I'm glad that Peter was following a practice that you had begun. I'm glad that the Old Testament helps us see the way it works as well, because in Naaman's story, we can find ourselves arguing with you over the simple things. Father, I'm praying especially for those that have been laying in the bed for a while. They need to be healed. They need to get up. I pray that you'll make that possible. Lord, I'm praying for all of us that we will remember to do simple things like make our bed that we might thank you that we're not in it anymore. Help us, Lord, to grab hold of those disciplines, those practices. Help us apply them that we might live with you. Thank you, Lord, for loving us the way you do, enough to die for us to forgive us of our sins, to extend us mercy that we couldn't find anywhere else and a grace that saves us. Thank you for all of those things. In Jesus' name, amen.